Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Jane Slack-Smith, who's the founder of Your Property Success and the owner of Investors' Choice Mortgages. We have a great chat with Jane about her three-pronged approach to property investing, that is buying under market, renovating to increase equity and increase the cash flow, and also purchasing based on growth, so finding those growth property locations. So she shares some great information about how to achieve these bang for buck renovations and the different types of renovations that you can do, how to purchase properties below market, even in a strong market, and how to purchase a property that's going to have good long-term growth fundamentals to help you weather the storm of the cycles. Jane's very generous with her time and it's a very illuminating interview. I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. Without further ado, here's Jane. Jane Slack-Smith, thank you for joining us on Geared for Growth. <laughs> Pleasure. Now, let's um, kick things off with who you are and what you specialize in. Oh, big question to start yeah. with there. <laughs> um, well, look, I'm a, a wife, I'm a mother, I am a trained uh, mining engineer, I'm a mortgage broker, and I'm a property educator. Well, we're going to give you a day off. There'll be no mining engineering <laughs> questions um, or, or, Good. or motherhood unless it's uh, it's pertinent. Um, that's, quite, that's quite a resume. Um we're going to dive deeply into what you're known for in in the property space and your expertise there. But give us a little bit of dirt on young Jane. What posters were on the wall growing up? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I remember the librarian getting sick of me because we were allowed to borrow a poster and have it for a month. And I borrowed the Cliff Richards Wide for Sound <laughs> poster and he had these roller skates on and I used to go back and renew it every single month and she's, and in the end I think she was willing to give it to me but it, it sat on my wall for about a year. <laughs> That's funny. We've never had anyone well, – we had a lot of people say, oh, I wasn't allowed blue tack but nobody say we, I rented my poster from the library and had to keep <laughs> re refreshing it. Well, it was. I'm, I'm always a very economical person, and uh, I thought, "Geez, this is a really good idea. If I actually get sick of this, I can then go and get another poster." I love it. <laughs> so, uh, how did you get started in property, and what was your first investment? I met my now husband Todd about twenty years ago, <clears throat> and uh, I he had a property in New Zealand, and I had. I guess got to the stage, I was around 28 and I had been uh, reading Rich Dad Poor Dad and he asked the question, does your money work for you or do you work for your money? And I had a very good income but I had no money left at the end of every week. So I had spent a, a significant amount of time you know, in a, in a job and no savings and it really made me stop and think about what I was doing with my money and I thought I need to get better at this. So for my 30th birthday, I gave myself appointments with three different financial planners and I made sure, you know, I paid $500 each for them for the appointment because I thought I don't want them, you know, uh, mixing the message of uh, commissions or anything. I want them to give me a recommendation. And one wanted a day trade for me, which sounded very risky. And another, the other two essentially said, give us your full $45,000 that you have and, you know, we will put it into the market and, you know, investments and we'll see how it goes. Mm. And I said, what about property? And they all went, nah, nah, 
no, can't can't talk about property. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I thought this is kind of strange. And I had been trained as an engineer and as an explosives engineer, and I had written a risk assessment uh, thesis on risk assessment. So I understood risk, and I thought, well, I have to be able to minimise the risk and maximise the potential for getting this right. And so my first investment, uh, Todd and I decided that we would come up with a system so that we could replicate if we got it right or course correct if we got it wrong. And essentially, you know, we looked within 10 k's of CBD of Melbourne. We looked at suburbs that we could afford to be in. I looked at a number of factors that would minimise my risk, so percentage of renters over a certain amount. Um, I wanted to be able to add value with renovation because I knew that I couldn't create the perfect property, uh, buy the perfect property because I only had $425,000. And so essentially we chose the suburbs of Collingwood, Carlton and Fitzroy and every single weekend out watch, watching what was happening in the market. Within three months, we could predict down to you know 5% of what the property would go for. And we drove down this amazing street and looked at these incredible big properties. And I said to my husband, one day, this is back in 2000, one day we will have a property here. And as it turned out, opportunity came up and that was our first property was awesome. in that street. So you had a very clear strategy from the beginning. Obviously, a, uh, a risk assessment mm-hmm. thesis is a fantastic position to be in. I'm not sure how many <laughs> listeners will have that in common with you. How, how, how important was that strategy from the beginning and, and was that successful and replicable by um, mm-hmm. you know, straight away? Oh, look, I was terrified. I had worked for, you know, in a, in a high-paying job in the mining industry, you know, since I was essentially 21 to 30 and I had hardly any money and in, in actual fact, they had just changed the super rules that allowed you to take out the extra money you put in super. So I pulled out $20,000 and I had a total of $45,000. So for me, I was terrified. I knew I had to get it right and hence I was going to look at the risks associated and the risk is essentially the consequence of something going wrong and the likelihood of it happening. So if the consequence of me getting this wrong um, was high, I had to be able to put in a step to minimise the risk. So for me, what a risk might be, you know, I can't rent the property out. Well, how would I minimise that risk? I'll get the typical property that renters want. I'll be in the streets that renters want to live in and I will be in a suburb where there's at least 30% renters. So me looking at the suburbs and looking at the properties and looking down to the street level, I pretty much minimise the risk in every step of the way. How how much has your strategy changed from there? We'll definitely talk about the renovation stuff in a moment, but are those Mm. basics, are those fundamentals things that you have in common today when you're purchasing? Oh, absolutely. Never changed, Well, if it works, Never changed. So essentially, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I'm, I'm kind of one of those engineers that creates a process that works course corrects if there's a problem and, you know, try to learn from the mistakes and then do it again and do it again. And once it works, you know, it just works. And I've shared it with my friends. I then shared it, you know, my family, my friends, they built multi-million dollar portfolios. They're like, I need new friends. And essentially well, that's why I started a business. meeting a lot of friends today, I hope, and we're all along for the ride. <laughs> I'm interested in, we, we've talked a little bit on the podcast about how, you know, you get an increase in salary and it's very easy to, to throw that away. Mm-hmm. H- how much Cliff merchandise can you be buying? Where was all your money going, Jane? 
Oh, I was, you know, I think about when I purchased, um, like this is pre-becoming savvy, I was um, enjoying my lifestyle, let's put it that way. I, you know, my, once I, I grew up in Dubbo on a farm, my father was a farm labourer. We didn't have a lot of money. The only way I could get to university was on a scholarship. I remember sitting down one Christmas with my parents writing 150 letters to um, different scholarships. I got a scholarship for mining engineering. I just knew if I got into university, I'd learn how to learn and I'd make it work. Um, and I could always course correct and get on to the next uh, career as it came up. And uh, so I got into university and... I had that scholarship, which allowed me to then help put my sister through school. So I helped uh, my parents put my sister through school and then helped put her through university. And meanwhile, I was kind of my very first job with Exxon. They gave me a credit card and I could not believe the power of a credit card. I went out to Oriton, I bought my first handbag and they didn't require me to give them the money. I couldn't believe it until I got the bill at the end of the month. And I was like, oh, they only want me to pay $5. This is fantastic. So I just had, I didn't come from a wealth mindset. Uh, and, you know, we used to have little market gardens and sell vegetables out the front of our house trying to make a few dollars and we'd make these dollars and we'd run to the lolly store next door and spend them. So I didn't have the the mindset of creating wealth at all and I didn't really have the role models to do that. So it was a very much a self-learned process and I got to the stage where I had been spending my money on you know, helping out my friends who probably who didn't have, you know, the money and, and uh, helping out family, et cetera, and, and I got to the stage and I was like, you know, I'm looking at my parents and they're going to retire on nothing. They don't own any assets. It's going to be up to me to give them back, you know, the the security that they gave me in my childhood. And, so, uh, and, and that's, that's when it got serious. Fantastic story. That's a, I think there's a lot, of, lot to be admired in that humble upbringing, but of course, the, the danger is you get something like a credit card and you can you can amplify your deficiencies <laughs> with, with financial literacy. Um, getting back to, to that salary, obviously that would have helped you from a purchasing point of view when you're getting assessed by the banks. I think a, a lot of people are, are thinking that you need to be on a, a solid six-figure-plus salary to invest in property. Do you, do you think a good job is critical to growing a high-performing uh, high, high portfolio? quickly oh look i look at my mortgage clients that i have across the country and you know mums and dads earning together forty thousand dollars you know working in uh restaurants that have been able to build good quality portfolios buying in that lower end of the market and you know they've got properties now that make the money every week and in actual fact some of them make them more money than their jobs make them and i've got you know single mums in, in Tamworth who, uh, you know, gone through a divorce and they have uh, they can only work, say, part-time in nursing and they're on a lower income and they're genuinely sitting there going, it is, it is my opportunity here to create something for my children and some security and they see property as the way to do it. And it, for me, it's just it's, – I'm so humbled – being part of that journey and you know I speak to people who are buying million dollar houses and and they have the exact same concerns as people buying $200,000 properties in you know in the middle of regional you know South Australia and 
and I think people put themselves in a category where they they think from a position of scarcity you know I don't have enough money or I don't have enough income I can't do this it's only the rich that can do this you know I had a fabulous income but I didn't have the deposit you know of my $45,000 $25,000 went straight to stamp duty and you know I think where there's a will there's a way if you come from a position of abundance which is I deserve more it has the premise that you have something or if you come from the premise of I deserve this, I, I should be rich, it comes to the premise that you have nothing. And I think sometimes the internal talk that we give ourselves is the thing that makes us a difference of knowing that we can That's do pretty, something yeah, and being able to achieve powerful stuff. So we're going we're gonna to smash that wall today and, and over, open our minds to the possibilities. Um, we definitely want to talk about how, how we can achieve those sorts of results, especially um, how you've been able to do that with people on those sorts of incomes. Can I firstly ask about the, the mortgage broking side? Um, what made you want to understand that side of property? Was it something that you were passionate about? Did you want to sort of see behind the scenes? Was it about trying to see how money could better work for you? What was the motivation there? Oh, I'd love to tell you this romantic story that I dreamt <laughs> of being a mortgage broker all my life. <laughs> not true in actual fact i've resisted it so um i had cracked the code by 2005 i had purchased quite a number of properties we had bought below the market we had renovated to add value and push up the cash flow create equity so that first forty-five thousand dollars was the only cash i ever put into any property and then subsequently use the equity to buy subsequent properties. Now, because of my income, I was allowed, I was able to buy quicker than most. But, you know, and then I would always concentrate on the high growth areas. So I had what I developed as the Trident strategy, buy below the market to make money, add ma money through renovation and in growth, make more money. So I had three ways to make money. So if I got one wrong, stuffed it up completely, I had two to fall back on, all that risk minimization coming into play here. So I guess when I created this and, and saw the opportunities and I did, you know, I love spreadsheets. I looked at the 15,655 suburbs in Australia. I did a regression analysis over what suburbs over the last 20 years had outperformed the market and then what characteristics they had. So I had the fundamentals and the data and I applied, you know, then putting in renovation as a strategy, making sure the suburbs I selected had uh, more pricing disparity between unrenovated and renovated properties so there was enough of a gap there to make money so I was very super focused on where to buy very super super focused on how to renovate and maybe not even renovating straight away renovating over you know a couple of years later but having a property that could be renovated so I had this strategy and I was teaching friends and family the strategy they were having success with it and I I really felt and he's the good Catholic girl coming out here I felt it was a sin not to share it and so I thought, who, who are the, who's the industry who shares this? Oh, they're financial planners. So I went and I went and signed up for this financial planning course and I'd turn up every week and I'd sit in the front row and after a while the trainer said, you are way too enthusiastic about this. What are you trying to achieve? And, and I said, oh, look, you know, I know how to help people with property. And he said, no, no, you can't talk about property. Financial planners can't talk about property. I was like, so how, how do you create a financial plan for someone if you can't talk about property, which is where most people have their money and their wealth? And he said, well, as a financial planner, you work for a company that tells you um, what 
what portfolios to sell and your job is to just do a risk profile of whether it's a you know a risky portfolio or a medium portfolio or a low risk portfolio you're a salesperson it's like no i know so then i thought well how how can i actually teach people this and my mortgage broker at the time said to me well you know you could always have a conversation about property if you're writing it alone and i was like oh i don't want to become like a used car salesman like you know, and then I thought, well, if I get the finance right and the structuring right and I get the location right, like these people are going to be supercharged. So then I just threw myself into it completely and uh, look, you know, good engineer. I wrote the procedures for my PA for daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual tasks wow. six years before I employed her. So started and then I decided I'd hack the system like I'd hacked property. And I wrote 30 questions down and I rang 30 brokers. Usually by the time I was halfway through, they'd (laughs) say, who are you? But I got most of the questions out. So I had the best practice um, of everything, who who the brokers aggregated through, where they got their clients, what's the best phone plan they were on, did they use a scanner or fax, everything. So I set up the business based on that and opened the doors and, I sat back and it's thought, this is going to be fantastic. how calculated you, you became. But, I mean, we're going to be the beneficiaries <laughs> of, of that today, let's hope. Um, the, I like the, the, the Trident idea, the, the three sort of points. One of them you mentioned uh, was renovations. And, and that's something that you've, um, you've been pretty well known in that space as, as the reno queen. And I'm interested to, to, to ask about renovation. Obviously, it's had a real renaissance with all of the, the reno shows. But I know that there are a lot of people that poo-poo renovations because of the cost to get in and out. And people sort of say, you know, I bought it for a mil and I sold it for a mil and a half. But then you look at stamp duty and you look at the risks of, of finding problems. The real world results maybe aren't always as glamorous as they look in the media. Talk to us about your framework for for renovations. Where do we start if we're looking to that point of the trident? Look, I think the thing is when we talk about renovations, it's a catch-all for so many different strategies. And... The, and, and like in your question when you talk about, you know, the getting in, getting out and the TV shows, what you're referring to there is a flipping strategy, buy, renovate, sell, usually within the same market and usually within a short period of time. And that is probably the most riskiest uh, renovation strategy. It's chapter 13 in my book, Why Flips Flop. You know, um, it's it's around a short-term uh, exchange of basically getting the right property in the right area for the right target market, renovating on a budget to the market's needs and selling quickly. And, you know, the market changes and you, you're the only thing that gives there is your profit or you you don't get the budget right, the only thing that gives is the, the profit. So there is risk associated with that type of strategy. And I find, you know, with the students that I talk to who come into the Ultimate Guide to Renovation, maybe 60% of them start off wanting to flip and about 15% of them actually use that strategy in the end. And we have very successful students who are flipping on the Central Coast and flipping, you know, all over Australia, but but they know the formula and they know how to get it right. But 
renovation is such a much bigger thing and, and my trident strategy is around making money in the short term buying below the market there's amazing chaos in the market at the moment and this is where there's time for this incredible transference of wealth from those that are uneducated on how to do this to those who are educated and savvy so we have this incredible opportunity you know 50% clearance rates means there's 50% of the market every single week open for negotiation. Yeah. So this is an incredible opportunity. And then we have making money buying below the market, making money with renovation. So for every dollar I spend, a minimum of $2 return, spend 50000 create $100,000 worth of equity. And then <clears throat> so you're making money in the mean term, middle term. Long term is where the growth is. So you know, we had a student recently, he did a 16-day oh, renovation for less than $8,000. It added $70,000 worth of equity straight up to the property. And he, sorry, this was in 2014. Wow. He was like, you know, doing fl flips. You know, there was more than he made on his, um, his uh, blue-collar income. But he called in to the office earlier this year and the property had been revalued at over a million dollars although he had made that seventy thousand dollars up front with the the um renovation that allowed him to get equity to buy another property he's now made over four hundred thousand dollars in growth really puts that reno you know pales in comparison but of course you know more is better right buying below the market getting that yeah. reno uplift, exactly. uplift and then growth as well that's pretty fantastic yeah, so, so renovation, you know, and I think everyone's always after the uh, renovation strategy and what's the, how much should you spend? And I really think there's like five different types of renovation. You have the kind of refresh renovation and that's where, you know, and I love these properties. They're dirty, they're smelly. Someone's been sitting there for 20 years smoking and there's tar on the ceiling and they the backyard's overgrown and you, you think, oh, my God, I'm going to catch something if I go out there. Really, all you need is elbow grease to to do the refreshed renovation. And you know, if you're not scared of the hard work or the smell or the, the the cat pee smell, you can you can really make a lot of money for a low cost. And then we kind of have the repair renovation, and the repair renovation is really when you don't need to replace the kitchen. You might just paint the the um, bench top or replace the handles or you might you know for instance just paint the walls in the property and fix up the fence so this doesn't cost a lot either and then you have what we normally see is these rejuvenation uh, renovations and they're the ones where you get the new kitchen and the new bathroom and you replace the carpet and you paint the property you might have to you know fix a bit of the roofing and that's they're the ones that are around 10 percent of the purchase price and then we have the restructure renovation. And the restructure renovation is really those structural renovations that most people who flip properties do. So they go to council, they get approval, they knock off the back of the property, they put on a nice butler's pantry, kitchen, living space. So we, we have that. And there's people who use that strategy um, sometimes with a bit of a, a twist as well, which, you know, I think is, is really clever. They might, for instance, make a two-bedroom property yep. into a three-bedroom property and you know take the property to a higher price point they might renovate the property out the front and get the equity to be able to do a subdivision out the back and then they sell off maybe the land or they build something out the back so i love that and then we just have the revamp and the revamp 
is probably one of the most underutilized renovation strategies. And that's people with a current portfolio that look at their portfolio and they go, gee, maybe I could do something here to actually improve the rent and keep my tenants longer and reduce the vacancies and even create new equity and so I can, you know, well, you hold a property do whatever you want. Long enough, it's going to get a little bit tired at some stage, you know, 10, 10 or 15 years in, right? Mm, absolutely. And it just depends. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, I look at cash flow uh, and I look at how we can always improve cash flow. And, you know, with my mortgage broking hat on, you know, the conversations around keeping your loans potentially on interest only and not principal and interest and being with lenders that will allow you to have 10-year interest only periods, not five-year interest only periods and managing that cash flow to suit your long-term needs. But also maybe having a, you know, multi-occupancy, what we used to call uh, rooming houses. There's a lot of high-end rooming house kind of communal living opportunities which can create great cash flow. There's the Airbnb short stay type of opportunity. And then there's renovation as a cash flow strategy helps you put the rent up. So there's all of these other strategies Something that can come into play as well. Something my ears and that was spend a dollar, make $2. Um, how do we know mm-hmm. what to do with the property? Obviously, we've got those those five R's, the different renovation strategies to, to varying degrees of expense mm-hmm. and, and, and time and effort, mm-hmm. I guess. But what are the mm. what are the bang for buck things? What what are some of the things that properties have in common that you can you can feel confident that if you are spending a dollar, you you're getting that double return? Oh, it's kind of um, I really I really want to step back here because I see a lot of people lose money on renovation, and it's because they're not aware of the number one thing that's going to make them the most money, and that's choosing the right location and the right property. So, you know, I said how I had done this analysis on the suburbs in Australia. What I found was that there's characteristics of suburbs that have growth potential. If you're buying for growth, you know, things like, um, you know, infrastructure spend and population growth and income growth and lots of different things. So I came up with like 20 different things that – I apply to suburbs. So of the so every month in my suburb selector software, I run these analysis. And of the fifteen thousand six hundred and fifty five suburbs that run through, only three hundred and thirty get through my first five filters that I'd even think about buying in. And then if renovation was my strategy, it's around looking in a suburb and looking at that pricing difference between the renovated and unrenovated properties. So if you're buying a three hundred thousand dollar property and the renovated properties are selling for three forty, and it's going to cost you thirty grand to do a renovation there's nothing in there for you but if you're buying in a suburb that's the you know properties unrenovated are 300,000 and the renovated are going for 420 and it's costing you $30,000 there's capacity to make money so first of all the right suburb then having the right property and one of the things people don't realize and I just love teaching this is that there's census data that tells us what streets the renters want to live in so you can hack right down to exactly where they want to live and then you look at the property itself and the capacity to add value so it's about understanding what the costs are going to be for the renovation now there's some big ticket items that are going to just get you the bang for the buck. And the first is street appeal. So everyone is always impressed with first impressions. So if you have that, you know, the wonky gate or the rusty letterbox or the number that's, you know, skewed off or the property that's uneven um, mode, 
you know, that's going to affect what people think of the property. And if you're renovating to have the valuer tell you that it's worth more, you want the valuer's first impressions to be affected as well. So renovation, you know, I'd start with the street appeal and then I'd go to the hub of the house. You know, the kitchen is where you get so much of the uh, atmosphere and the living of a property and being able to improve the kitchen area is often, you know, one of the big uh, value adds you can make. But painting as a low-cost way to add big value can be, you know, amazing. And then, you know, if I was going to sell the property or even if I was going to try to present the property in the best possible light for a valuer, I'd do staging. I would have that property staged so it created the exact look that I want that property to have so that you're not walking in and going, ah, empty room, empty room. You're actually creating an environment. So it's going to get a better valuation, hopefully, and, I love that, Jane, uh, because you, you, you gave me an answer to the question of, of what I wanted in the beginning. Here I was thinking you might just say kitchens, and I'm like, yay, we'll all go and do renos and kitchens. But you, <laughs> made, you made us understand something that's more important than just picking a kitchen. I think that's a, a really interesting point to, to look at, mm. firstly, the location, and then the location will demand what renovations mm. are on the table, right? Because you might be in a location where mm. it's all units, so it's not like you know you can do a backyard exactly. renovation because they don't have backyards and then also the disparity between mm. renovated properties and unrenovated properties and what that gap is if the gap's mm-hmm. small we're wasting our time if the gap is large then we look at well, what's different about those properties and we'll just do that that's have, have i have i summed mm. that up fairly well you got it. You got, and you know, it breaks my heart. I have people who come to us and they go, "I've got this property. I'm going to renovate it." I'm like, there's no, there's no capacity to add value. Was that? But it needs a lick of paint. It looks really bad. Like, well, but you're not going to make money out of made this. Made it look really glamorous and. <laughs> Well, this is the thing, you know, when I talk to my mortgage clients, I talk about their vision strategy match to start with because, and it's just as relevant when we're talking about property investing because the vision strategy, if your vision is to have a $100,000 passive income in 15 years' time, then, you know, a buy and hold strategy with renovation will get you there with two properties. If it's I want to have a $100,000 passive income in three years' time. It might be, you know, a high-risk strategy like subdivision, for instance, or development. But the finance is you have to have the right finance to match your strategy, but then you have to have the right suburb to match your strategy as well. And I think this is where people miss the the understanding. You know, when I talk about, you know, like choosing a location, we talk about set your destination first, understand the strategy. Don't buy a property and then go, oh, I think I might renovate it or, oh, I think I might subdivide. The council may require you to have a block of 800 square metres and you've got a block of 755. You know, you need to know the strategy first before you even like look at the, the property or the I think I might, we can use as a, as a decision framework for thongs or shoes but to properties worth <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions, it's it's oh, terrifying, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this is I, – I talk to everyday Australians. I'm not talking to people on, you know, $250,000 incomes. These are people who are mums and dads who, you know, just like me get the, the school fees come home or, hey, here's an out-of-pocket kind of uh, school excursion and you're like, oh, I didn't really allow for that this month. You know, we're having the conversations with people who are – 
potentially trying to just get ahead and create some security for themselves and you know, with my Lisa that they don't have to worry about it and then they end up with a property or a slick marketer has sold them a, off the plan something or other and they find that not only have they not been able to create that security for themselves they're potentially even worse off week in week out with their cash flow and they've got that um there's a loss of confidence it's like you know I've kind of screwed up and lost the nest egg on this one and I can't do this again and it's it's it, for me, it creates the biggest despair because I can't. I just want to grab people before they get into that situation. And go, it's okay. There's a process. You know, follow the bouncing yeah. ball, and and not have to save people. But it happens so often. And I think you know, we we see these TV shows and we really believe that there's an opportunity for us to make money out of property, but only if you do it strategically. Well, keep fighting the good fight, there, Jane. As we move on to the next part of the trident, I'm really interested in the below market stuff i mean mm. maybe at the moment the the sort of flower is blooming for below market but what about in mm. hot markets the, mm. i know that there are still ways to buy below market a lot of people mm -hmm. talk about um off market sales like they're sure. the new black but then i've heard people sort of <laughs> say well you know the secret buyer's agent strategy <laughs> yeah but not all off market sales are created equal what what are we talking mm. how do we buy below market Look, it's the only thing in the Trident strategy that I would forego if I had to in a hot market. So in a hot moving market where the difference between two to three months is going to be twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, buying now as opposed to in three months' time is actually buying below the market essentially. Yeah, right. So buying at the market, um, I have bought properties in fast moving markets going up uh, below the market. And some of the like some weird things, let me tell you. Um in Sydney, for instance, I bought a defence house property. So a defence house property is a property that is leased to the defence on a secure rent for a period of time. And these people going through a divorce, the agent didn't understand what a defence type property was. Flow and you know, with my put it in the commercial section of the real estate paper in the paper. Ugh. So, so no one was looking at this property. So we could negotiate. <laughs> pretty much and uh, what we wanted and in the divorce you know these people were quite well off and uh you know she by virtue of the fact liked us was like happy to have a go and i've i've had friends in the past who've put in uh property offers and the you know the person really said i like i like you i don't like the others the others are trying to you know really get something out of this and although you've put in a lower offer I like you. So there's sometimes there's a like factor which we can't we can't uh, create a procedure for. But <laughs> I, I bought a property that was hard to access. It was full of uni students. They all had a locked door. You could only see two of the four bedrooms at once. No one was willing to to um, buy based on the fact they couldn't see half of the house. And I just went over at nighttime and knocked on the door and said, "Look, I'm looking at uh, buying this property. You know, if I did, you know, you'd ha I'd give you." due notice to move out but i really want to have a look at the rooms can i have a look and like yeah that's something that i haven't actually heard before and i i'm surprised i'm actually <laughs> surprised how easy you make it sound well i tell you here's, here's a hack right so i've got some students where I, you know we get targeted down to the suburbs and we get targeted down to the streets that we want to buy in and there's nothing on the market that suits what you're after 
So one of the things that I've used and shown my students how to use in RP Data Professional is um, the Territories tool. Now, RP Data Professional is for mortgage brokers and real estate agents, but I kind of hacked it for property investors. And I create a territory within the streets that I want to buy in. I know specifically that a three-bedroom property is the typical property from census. I look at, say, SQM research and find that the typical size block is 600 to 800 square metres. So I set up alerts for 600 to 800 square metre, three-bedroom properties within, let's say, these three streets where I know the renters want to live. But if I'm lazy, well, if, I'm, if I want to wait for the alerts to come and the properties go on the market, that's one thing. But you could do a door drop to those addresses. Just go, look, I'm looking to buy in this area. Um, I was wondering if I could uh, talk to you about your property. And it, it is amazing how many of my students have been able to uh, have got a call from someone saying, I was going to put it on the market next yeah, week. Let's, let's have a chat. Let's cut the agent out and get it under market for the both yeah. of us. So it's off market, but I think that uh, sometimes there's an illusion of this secret off market uh, that market that exists where in actual fact you can create that's, it yourself. It's very interesting stuff and some some solid advice there. I've, I've heard a number of people have uh, sort of employed that sort of strategy from a development point of view, but um, some really good insights. <laughs> Let's talk about location. Obviously, you're very methodical. You can take the girl out of engineering and all that sort of stuff. Um, talk to us about how us as, as, as lay investors, for want of a better term, can, can, can learn some of the fundamental drivers behind suburbs. Um, you mentioned 16,500 and I forgot the last two digits, but you've... you've <laughs> You've said it probably. twice perfectly. <laughs> Talk to us about your methodology and how you drill down to these areas and then and then even even to the streets you've just mentioned. Oh, absolutely. Well, look, it's one of the reasons that um, it used to frustrate me. You know, I created a spreadsheet. I told my students, you know, go here to invest smart to get the discount information and go here to the back of the magazine to get the one, three, five, ten-year information and go over here to get SQM research to get the vacancy rates and go to census to find the typical size property. And this all takes time. And uh, and in the end, you know, I'm probably a little bit of a pushover, but my students came back and said, can you just do it for us? So every month now, I basically in my suburb selector software, I go through and I pull out all of the suburbs, major regionals and, and capital cities, and everything's there together so you can compare things quickly. And the things that I like to compare and the, the things that I would get rid of a suburb straight away, you know, I'm looking for over 30% renters. I'm looking for under 3% vacancy rates. I'm looking for um, the typical property being a house, not a unit because that kind of uh, um, asset is the thing that where the growth in the suburb grows. I then look at growth in the population area, that there's people moving to the area. I look at things like uh, making sure that there's income growth in the area as well. And then I get to know the typical person. So I know it's mum, dad and two kids and the kids are in primary school. So I'm looking for maybe a, a yard with a fence and a backyard, uh, a a window from the kitchen that the parents can watch the kids in the backyard. So, you know, you, you can actually get down to the level of understanding what the property should look like, three-bedroom on a 600, 800-square-metre um, block. You can get down to the streets the renters want to be in, and you can get to the suburb that actually is going to give you 
800, 800 square meters. Stuff we're talking about here. Is this some Stuff special it. Jane software that you've developed or is this information available to, to investors? Yeah, look, I have um, a kind of, once again, you know, want to share it with the world. I have a location masterclass um, course where I just teach people how to do this and they get access to my suburb selector software. So I've created this myself because I couldn't find something. But, you know, what I've done is kind of um, created the methodology and just teach people how to do these comparisons. But what I've shared with you here is exactly where I get the information, back in the magazines, the websites. People can do this themselves. It's just that I get uh, – I want to hack systems and get things done quickly so I can make decisions quickly. So I created something that, you know, maybe others I'm would le- want to do I'm the same. to so. always follow the engineer. No matter, no matter where you find yourself in life, <laughs> the engineer is going to find the solution. Exactly. The quickest exactly. way to do it. <laughs> now, there's a couple of headwinds in the property space at the moment. I wanted to, to talk to you about those. Um, obviously, as a mortgage broker, you've got a very good insight into the uh, the credit crunch that we're sort of mm. seeing with property investors at the moment. Can we start with um, the lending landscape where you're sort of seeing people with sure. good serviceability getting good deals, um, how how tight is it? What what do you you see as an outcome of the of the Royal Commission of 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 APRA of the mm-hmm. sort of RBA rhetoric? W- what's going to happen? I like Stop, to ask Mike, too many seventeen questions. of them and then just see if you can remember three. <laughs> Oh, well, look, you know, we kind of have to go back to the 2015 and uh, the Sydney and Melbourne markets were going gung-ho and RBA could not put up rates that were going to then damage the rest of the property market that wasn't going gung-ho. And that's when APRA and ASIC stepped in. They took some dramatic steps to minimise the investor market in those very high growth areas. And that predominantly was saying to the banks, it's up to you guys, but we want you to get your investing lending under 30% or in your interest rate only loans under 10%. And, you know, by the way, be more mindful of the people that you're servicing and make sure that they don't borrow too much. So make sure that, you know, you're putting all their living expenses in there. And they've just put a number of these filters in place. Now, as a mortgage broker, we when we do a we do a discovery call. We get to know the person. Can we work together? Can we help them? And then we do a um, you know twenty page personal lending plan, looking at their their you know vision for the future and what they're doing now and their subsequent lending to make sure that we don't do a one and done that's going to you know, hit their ceiling sooner than later. And then we start talking to the lenders and we put in an application and we go through and we settle the loan. Now. That usually takes us about 17 hours. Since all these changes, it's now about 27 hours for us to do that process. So from a mortgage broking point of things, we're, we're managing this whole process. Uh, it's taking a whole lot longer to do. But then we have the, I guess, the considerations where, well, the banks are also saying to us, you know, we are looking at the Royal Commission. The findings in the Royal Commission are going to make us be more vigilant in how you're looking at your lending. So, as an example, you know, we've had assessors come back. So, we know that the bank's assessors were told, you know, there is black and white, there is no grey. So, if there's something that you see here that is something unusual, you have to ask the question or decline the loan. And so, we've that time has been in having these conversations with the lenders and saying, you know, what's your next problem? So, for instance, I had a client that 
had put in an application for a loan. The assessor was going through her her statement of expenditure and there was a $67 charge there with Harris Scarf and, in, and they came back to us and said, oh, this person who's about to go out and buy a property, uh, should they be spending that much money with Harris Scarf, and, which is $67 we're talking here, and to give you the 800 square metre debit card, did they actually get a debit card? I'm like, well, no, this is on their FPOS. So we went back and I had to ask this client, what did you spend your money on? They're like, well, I got, I got training bras for my daughter. So then we had to go back to the bank and go, okay, so, you know, we're buying underwear. Is that okay? So, you know, this is stupid, stupid questions. And I'm glad to say the banks, you know, end of November have really, they've given their assessors a bit of a leniency. And what we're seeing at the moment, you know, we're, we're really excited about this is a lot of the lenders have gone, whew, we got under our caps and we're getting 1.6% discounts for our clients. You know, we're, we're requesting these discounts and getting substantial discounts because the banks want the investors back in the market. So, so we've, and we're seeing all these rebates if you change lending, et cetera. But I think the thing is about finance is that, you know, people can jump on uh, the interest rates that are being offered at the moment and some of the benefits that are going through, but they can actually completely damage you executing your strategy unless you get it right. So there's going to be a change in the market that comes up. We know that living expenses are going to get tighter on how the lenders assess them. So we know that that's coming. We know that potentially there's um, the future interest rate rise in you know two two years time if there's not an interest rate reduction at some stage mm. based on the economy, but. We, the biggest thing that's about to blindside us is if Labor gets in to government and they put in these negative gearing and capital gains tax changes. And if they do that, just like what they did to your industry last year with depreciation, like it's just gonna it's gonna change the environment completely. And I think what we're gonna do is we're going to see a short term run on property come March, April, May, where people are like, Oh my god, I have to get in to grandfather mm these current policies in and then we're going to have the fallout from that kind of issue we're going to have you know APRA and ASIC did the exact right thing they should have done because you know lending lending scrutiny was low the lower than it is now let's say there's definitely not as low as we've seen in America and, and the such we still have very good lending um, scrutiny yeah. um, we've seen the interest rates were low. We saw investors seeing the market going up and you just had to buy something anywhere, as it seemed, and, you know, you'd make money. So we had this kind of um, opportunity and then they'd have a five-year interest-only period and they hadn't really worked out if interest rates went back to the average of 7.5%, what would that look like? And especially if we had principal and interest loans. So in five years' time, 2020, we could have had a market where everyone was putting their properties back on the market. So these stringent lending um, requirements that have come in have been great for the property industry. They have given more vigilance. It gives us an opportunity to talk to people about being aware of where to buy and how to buy and structuring things correctly and thinking ahead. But, you know, there's, there's so many opportunities for people to still get finance. And I know I, I talk to people every week where they go into the big bank and the bank says, no, you can't get money, and they give up. 
And then some of them, a small percentage come to us and we're like, well, there's other lending institutions that are still servicing it different ways. So you could still borrow some money, but let's understand that you have some buffers in place. You understand what happens when your loan goes to principal and interest. You have the money set aside and, you know, there is opportunity for you to still get into the market. Well, so That's positive I to hear. I answered No, no, no. That's, um, <laughs> you, you, did a, you did a sterling job and it's, it's very encouraging to hear that uh, things are sort of coming a little bit back background mm. to, to, to an equilibrium of, of, of balance lending. Funnily enough, my, my headwind question number two was the negative gearing stuff. Um, mm. One of the concerns that's, that's been voiced on this podcast before um, is that there's going to be an incentive to buy new and we already have incentives to buy new. We have the first homeowner grants. We have depreciation in general, but especially as you mentioned, the changes in mm. 2017. Now we've got proposed negative gearing laws from a government that looks like it's going to gallop itself um, from an opposition that's going to gallop into into government. Um, mm -hmm. you, you talked about a potential run on property. After we see that little blip happen, what are you sort of thinking and, and, and how well thought out do you see this this policy as, as, as being? And it, was it a good idea when the market was going crazy, but it's a bad idea now? What, what do you think? You know, I think of the Labor government like a spoilt child at the moment where they've made this statement, which was possibly a great statement and policy when the market in the Sydney and Melbourne market, you know, 55% of where Australians live was dominating the market, seemed to be on a runaway train. They made this policy and statement. The market has changed, circumstances have changed, and it's like a spoilt child, like slamming a little foot down refusing to change their position because it's going to make them look bad, you know. It's like being stubborn. And and I feel that there's a lot of evidence to indicate that these policy changes are definitely not in the right interest of, you know, everyday Australians in the property market and, and where we are. And let's remember, you know, we have a, an ageing workforce. We have the baby boomers retiring. You know, their wealth is in property and having a 10, 20% drop in their home values when they're about to retire and downsize, you know, that's costing them hundreds of thousands of dollars of their future retirement. You know, this is, this is real world people with real world problems. And majority of people, you know, generalization, blue collar workers that vote for, for labor, most of the people who have negative geared properties in Australia earn less than $80,000. We're not talking about, you know, the super rich sitting in their, you know, ivory tower somewhere. We're talking about everyday Australians. This is going to affect them. And this, you know, my heartfelt plea is that don't be the sport child and have to be stubborn and stick to stick to the policies that you put out. Every other government has broken every other policy. Feel free to not go ahead with that promise if you get into to um to government we, but we could write the speech now right jane we could sort of say dear australian <laughs> government we appreciate politicians sometimes thanks to give you 800 square meters we our heart was in the right place but you know we've revisited this thing and an agile opposition should be able to change policies based on the best interests apra did its job uh we won't do this again can we yeah we got you we back forward in. that to bill and did he just sign it like, what? happy happy to to sign my name to that draft with you and, and i think you know your question around these new properties uh, i mean 
obviously I have used a strategy around adding equity to put a buffer of extra money-making opportunities into my property strategies and how I teach people to do that. And you can't do that with new properties. And, you know, I spoke to a lady at a barbecue and she was lamenting. So she was in Melbourne. They had this beautiful home in Kew. After years of convincing her husband they should invest in property, they bought a um, house, new house and land package out in Point Cook in a new development area, you know, the developers kept selling new developments. The tenants weren't very loyal. They'd moved to the new property every time they'd come up. These guys were in a bit of a cash flow situation. So they had to move from their beautiful home in Kew move and to Point Cook so they could rent the house out in Kew. They were driving daily, you know, hours just to get the kids to the school and violin lessons and everything and I was talking to her and she said you know we really learnt our mistake we bought a house out of town so we've just signed up to buy a unit in the centre of town Ooh, ouch and I was, I was like, you've got this – it's it's not the asset type or location that's creating the problem here. It's supply and demand, the over-demand of the house and land package or over-demand of the units is what uh, – sorry, there's oversupply of these is why there's no growth associated with them as well. And it, it really um, – she was really shocked that she got it wrong because she's like, it just made sense. It's not a house, it's a unit. It's not out of town, it's in town. And without understanding that fundamental of the oversupply of these units or oversupply of these house and land packages and these new properties that people will be driven into and particularly the first-home buyer is not going to create wealth as we've seen wealth created for you know, mums and dads around Australia over the many years, it's going to get people into an asset that may go backwards in value. They can't manufacture equity themselves by doing a renovation and making it different because everything's the same. And when people get a little bit desperate and they go, well, my place is not renting at three fifty a week, I'm going to put it on at $300 a week, that then becomes the market value for your property. And when they say, you know, I need to really sell this. I'm going to sell it 400000 rather than 500000 That now becomes the market value for your properties as well. So you've lost all control over, over your property's value by falling into this new property trap. And I think it's just – it's – it's going to be an absolute schmozzle if this is what happens to our next generation mm, of people buying homes. The trident. And opposites are only opposites depending on your terms of reference or your, your frame of reference, right? Like, so <laughs> yeah. those things seem opposite, but in many ways they're identical. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I know that, I mean, I've taught thousands of people, you know, my techniques. But I know if you get this right, it only takes one or two properties in a good quality area that you buy over four to five years. And let's just say the market's down at the moment and you buy, you add value and you put your rent up so that by the time that you the market comes back around, you can pull out the equity. You've got a better borrowing capacity because you put the rent up. You know, you're in a position to buy maybe your next property in five years' time. Then you sit back. You know, Get on with life for the next 10 years. You don't have to be active in your investments if you've chosen the right properties in the beginning. And, you know, to me, having that the ability to teach your kids at your your um, hip how to do this and how to value, value money and how to invest wisely and how to be strategic and then have time to, you know, see that your financial future is looked after and have the conversations around the dinner table and, you know, potentially being in a financial position to 
give them the education that you want to give them and give them the opportunities they can have so they then go on and create, you know, the next generation of, of people who are savvy in, in creating wealth for themselves. I mean, this is intergenerational change that we can create by just, you know, teaching people how to buy properties Speaking of which, in the right area. I know that obviously there's people can jump on board with your system and, and learn from yourself directly, but you obviously also share a lot of content throughout the interwebs. How do people get in touch with you and, and get in your <laughs> ecos, uh, ecosystem, Jane? Well, you can obviously go to our website, yourpropertysuccess.com.au. We have a Facebook page, which is Your Property Success as well, or Investors Choice Mortgages, another Facebook page, or, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm not great at Insta, but I'm on Insta and I'm on Twitter. So, you know, just put my name down and you probably find there. me anywhere. So, Jane, if you could leave us with one piece of advice that you would give to property investors, what would that be? Look at this. There's a question mm-hmm. that has actually only one question in it. We'll finish, we'll finish simply. Get the location right. That's all it's got to be, right? That's one of the biggest points of the Trident. Absolutely. Location right. Make sure it matches your strategy. Understand the the strategy that you have that reflects the vision that you have that you want to achieve. And if you have those three things aligned, boy, awesome. you know, you're Jane, on fire. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.